Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm your host, Kaiser Guo, joined this week by David Moser, our good friend and the academic director of the CET program here in Beijing. The notorious Jin Yumi is on big holiday this week, or he's down in Hong Kong for whatever reason, hopefully gathering good first-hand observations and forming some keen insights for a future show that we have about the uh, recent very large-scale anti-Beijing protests. And of course, what's happening now generally in the special administrative region. David, how are you, man? Very good, very good. A pleasure as always. I understand that you spent the morning at the Great Hall of the People with Secretary of State John Kerry and Vice Premier Liu Yandong, Mm, celebrating 35 years of educational exchange. Of educational exchange between the People's Republic of China and and the U.S., yeah. But the most exciting thing was Yao Ming was there. Yao Ming was there? Yes. Did anyone anyone see anything else except for Yao Ming? (laughs) Yes, people, let's sit down, please. <laughs> no, he towered, let's put it that way, above yeah. everyone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I understand that you killed there, that you, you gave a really good speech. Uh, I, well, thank you. I hope so. Yeah, I did I a little bit of stand-up really for them. Very positive reports yeah. from my friend Allison Friedman. Uh, anyway, by wonderful coincidence, we actually will be talking about educational exchange, among other aspects of education in China. Education in China is is sometimes the object of breathless or, or even envious praise. Sometimes it's derided, or only more often, it's just derided for producing soulless automatons who utterly lack critical thinking skills or imagination or the capacity to innovate. Um, you have, on the one hand, the uh, Shanghai students kicking serious ass on the PISA, the uh, Program for International Student Assessment. Uh, they took first place in mathematics and science and reading uh, a couple of times in this triannual uh, assessment. On the other hand, uh, you have a great deal of criticism over the ubiquitous practice of teaching to the test, teaching specifically to the Gaokao, to the college entrance examinations, uh, about the rigidity and the hierarchical nature of, 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 of thinking that's, that's, that's imposed um, in the pedagogical system in China, and about the rampant cheating that, that uh, may result from, from some of the above. So today we're, we're delighted to be joined by Jiang Xueqin, who is uh, deputy principal of Tsinghua Fuzhong, the uh, high school affiliated with prestigious Tsinghua University here in Beijing. Xueqin is an outspoken and oft-quoted advocate for education reform, someone with very strong views on what's right and what's wrong with the Chinese educational system. Xueqin, welcome to Seneca, and thanks for taking the time to share your ideas with our listeners. I'm very pleased to be here, guys. This is actually my first podcast, so I'm very nervous. Well, we'll be gentle with you. Thank you very <laughs> much. <promise. laughs> so wait, let's, let's talk first about Shanghai's very impressive PISA results. Sure. Um, which was um, uh, included by the OECD in tests, I think, for the first time in 2009? 2000? That's correct, yes. Yeah, okay. But it's Shanghai that, that, that took first place. First, explain what, what the hell, why, why do they allow a city to participate rather than a, a country when everything else is at a country level? Well, in 2009, PISA entered China for the first time. Uh-huh. And uh, 12 provinces, including Shanghai, participated in the PISA. Uh-huh. And in 2010, when the results were publicly released, only Shanghai, uh, only the results from Shanghai were announced. And Andres Schleicher, who runs PISA, told me that the reason why is that the OECD is only happy and confident with the methodology in the Shanghai piece of performance. Okay. Um, so for a lot of bureaucratic reasons, they chose not to give a country ranking and rather just focus on Shanghai. I, I guess there are a couple of other countries that, that um, only do municipality. I think in India, I think it's only Bombay or, or Mumbai. Uh, is, that, is that correct? I'm not sure. I mean, for, for my knowledge, there are only three cities, Hong Kong, Macau, and Shanghai, all part of the China PRC That's right. officially, and they're the ones uh, whose uh, results are announced as separate entities. So, okay. uh, but I'm not I'm not sure about India actually. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it was really striking. I think anyone who, who looks at that list of, of, of rankings of PISA will not, no, not only notice that Shanghai is, 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 is way up there at the top, but also that everything in, in the sort of top echelon is an East Asian country or region. Absolutely. So it's um, basically Shanghai, then you have South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Kong, Macau, they're they're in the top 10 for sure. Right. Uh, So these Asian countries dominate these uh, PISA rankings. And you can make the argument that that's really an indicator that PISA is skewed towards certain skills that are focused in East Asian education systems and not particularly focused in, say, European or American school systems. It's, It's mathematics heavy, is that right? Well, there are three subjects. There's mathematics, there's uh, reading, and there's science. Mm-hmm. But, David, you, you want to add, add something? No, I was just going to say, the way you put that, though, is perhaps suspect. You said it, it indicates that the test is skewed. But, I mean, what is, there, what is the proof of that? I mean, some, they could say uh, also that we just excel in these, in these subjects. Why is this skewed? I don't sure. Understand. My issues with the PISA are many. But the first issue is that uh, the PISA test is a snapshot of the education system through the eyes of a 14-year-old. Right. So only 14-year-olds are tested. And they're not tested, you know, from the age, from, like, you know, first time when they're 7 or 14 and then 24. So the results only reflect how 14-year-olds perform in the, in the school system. Now, as we know, 14-year-olds are probably the most volatile age group uh, of students. I mean, they're undergoing through puberty. Right. Um, there's, a, there's a tectonic shift in, in their brains and their mm-hmm. hormones. So that's a very volatile and really unpredictable age for, um, for, for, for kids. Right. So you look at America. Listen, if you, when you go into a classroom in America, how many 14-year-olds can sit still? <laughs> and can you get them to sit still for five hours? And that's something that East Asia does very well. These Singaporean kids, these kids in China, they can sit still and do a test for five hours. Um, I don't think you would find that many kids in America or in Europe who would actually sit still for like five hours and do a test. Is that an indictment of Chinese pedagogy, or is that is that? Uh, uh, yeah, there's this there's this good? German uh, sort of virtue that they, they, they have a word for it, Sitzfleisch, which okay. means sit flesh, the ability to sit for hours and concentrate. Uh, Why is that not an advantage? Stick to activity. Yeah, or, stick well, to activity. Anti ADD. Wow, I mean, you guys are, <laughs> are uh, speaking on behalf of the Chinese education system. So I was, I'm not prepared for this. <laughs> but um, what I would argue is that education encompasses many different spheres. And the school system, which focuses on literacy and numeracy, is only one part of a child's developmental. So I yeah, think well, that, I definitely agree with that. Right, yeah. so I think that uh, the ability to interact with friends, the ability to make mistakes... Uh, the opportunity to take risks, um, you know, individual space, uh, especially for teenagers, is very important. And the problem in China is that students are not given this individual space. It's schooling from morning until they go to bed. Um, so it's either, you know, going to school and seeing lectures from like 9 until 4 and then going to cram school and then whatever extracurricular activities the parents ha- have arranged for the kid. So you're saying almost that the, the PISA is a culturally biased exam, right? Favors a, a sort of uh, not not just a, a formal educational system, but actually a style of parenting and, and everything that, that is... Well, I mean, Kaiser, you can make the argument that every test is fundamentally biased. Mm-hmm. Um, we've spent you know decades of research research on tests like the IQ test, the SAT. And we've, what we discovered is that... Every test, any test, will 
just test your ability to do well on the test, including IQ test, including SAT, including the Gaokao, uh, which is the National College Entrance Examination in China, including the PISA. So the fact of the matter is that East Asia is a testing culture. High stakes testing is fundamental and ingrained in the culture. It has roots um, that goes back, you know, thousands of years in East Asian culture. Mm -hmm. So, of course, East Asian kids will do better on a test than kids in Europe and America. I mean, like another example of this is like you you look at the SAT, right? Mm -hmm. Well, kids from East Asia will dominate over other uh, group, groups in America. Chinese love taking tests, right? I mean, in America, you know, you, you say to a class, okay, we're doing a test today. All the kids groan, right? Except right. for that one Chinese kid in the back who's like, yes, <laughs> this is my opportunity to shine. You know, I suck at football, not good with girls, but on a math test, this is, this is my time. So uh, this is basically, you know, the PISA is, is basically a godsend for Shanghai uh, because, you know, the Shanghai authorities, they're very much concerned with their international reputation. They really want to promote the school system. So, I mean, you could make the argument that Shanghai did so on the PISA because they were motivated to do well. From the top down, the education authorities told the teachers, listen, make sure your kids do well on the PISA. And this would never happen in America or in Europe. Right. There may have been some some lift generated by the top-down kind of, you know, the central authorities wanting Shanghai to, to do well on this. But I think it's pretty widely understood that, that Shanghai's uh, educational system itself among Chinese cities and provinces uh, is exceptionally good. Is, oh, that, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, in terms of teaching kids fundamental skills, um, especially in numeracy and literacy, the Chinese education system is very good. And the Shanghai school system is at the K to 12 level, the very best it, China has to offer. What does and, it do right? What are they getting right? Right. The Chinese education system that we have today, it's a blended model of, of the Confucian system, you know, where people looking to get into the, um, the Mandarin system, they had to go through a series of examinations sure, to... Uh, civil service examinations. Yeah, sure, system. sure, to demonstrate their understanding of orthodoxy, political orthodoxy and the ability to conform to this political orthodoxy. This is what's called the Koju system. It's, this goes back thousands of years. Um, so, and as you say, it's a civil service examination. But, uh, but starting in the 1950s, when China was beginning to build its economy, it also needed to create a proletariat. And that meant taking people from the countryside and teaching them basic numeracy and literacy in order for them to become factory workers. So what we have in China is basically a blended model of a Confucian system with a Stalinist system. This system has three major object objectives. The first major objective is to make sure that the vast majority of your population has basic literacy and numeracy skills to be able to contribute to the socialist economy. And they did that very well. Second is to maintain political orthodoxy throughout the country. So, you know, China's a strange place because it's the size of Europe. It's probably as diverse in terms of ethnicity as Europe. But if you go to Yunnan, if you go to Tibet, or if you go to, you know, um, Harbin, everyone thinks the same. Everyone has the same ideas about how the system works, about the history. So the system is very good at indoctrinating a sort of political um, orthodoxy throughout the, the country. And the third major goal was basically to distribute scarce education resources in the fairest and most meritocratic way possible. Mm -hmm. And that's why we created something called the Gaokao, the National College Entrance Examination. So every child, the moment he is born, he is being trained to do well on the Gaokao. So high-stakes testing, what we find is that because China has a high-stakes testing system, it's good at equipping as many people as possible with basic numeracy and literacy skills. 
because you're motivated to, to do so and the system is in place to make sure that they learn these skills in order to pass tests. Mm-hmm. What we find, though, is that the same high-stakes testing system limits students in higher-order thinking skills like creativity, empathy, judgment, collaboration. And that's where China is most, su- is most lacking right now. Right. I mean, that's, the, that's what we always hear. I mean, that's the, anyone who is the first thing about Chinese pedagogy will point right away to the prevalence of this rote learning and the relative lack of critical thinking, like you were talking social interactive skills. Uh, we've already alluded to that. Uh, and, but you know, we've been talking about this problem for decades, right? Sure. This has been something that, that we've been keenly aware of. I'm, I'm the parent of two primary school students, um, and my distinct sense is that, that resistance to any fundamental change to this isn't necessarily coming from the schools or the teachers or the Ministry of Education, but it may be something maybe more more profound and maybe more inertial, which is from the parents themselves. Exactly. Yeah, that's my impression too. You know, we always have this problem with as soon as you try to reform the Gaokao, or if you you suggest, for example, uh, you know, lowering the percentage of English or, you know, reforming it in, in such a way as to encourage creativity that one of the first people who squawk is the parents yep. because they're, they're so concerned that their, their children do well on the test to get into college. That's paramount. And in fact, some schools will hesitate to make even basic curriculum changes uh, that would encourage these kinds of things because they're going to get skepticism from the parents yep. who are saying, you know, well, you know th- these, I only have two more years and the kid has got to learn his STEM skills as much as he can. Right. Do, do you feel like that's starting to change at all? You're absolutely right in that the major resistance is coming from parents. So what's happening in China right now is that the ones who are most advocating education reform are basically the elite in education. So the universities, right, uh, Peking University and Tsinghua University, who believe that the Gaokao is not producing the students necessary uh, to do well in an academic setting and to do um, research um, because they lack critical thinking skills and scientific research skills. Top educators in China have been advocating for education reform ever since the days of Tyrone Pei, right? Tyrone Pei was the principal, or he was the, the, the first principal of Peking University, right? Right, and... In, during the May 4th era. Right? That's right. The communist elite, people who, who run the uh, economy, are concerned that the education system is not producing the workers necessary to maintain China's economic development. So right now there's a real mismatch between what the economy needs, which are you know basically managers, designers, entrepreneurs, and what the education system is producing, which is basically a lot of accountants and computer programmers. So the political hierarchy is very concerned that if we don't change the education system, then China's economic development will stall, which is a paramount concern of the Communist Party. At the grassroots level, parents think that, I mean, they have a very simple explanation for what's going on. They think that the elite is trying to screw them. So um, there are three major problems in the Chinese education system that I see. The first major problem is that the Chinese education system, it's a monolithic socialist bureaucracy, which is top-down, and it's resistance to change. As we know, bureaucracies are always resistant to any change. There's bureaucratic inertia, so that's one major problem. But then the other problems are cultural, which is that you know China is very much a society that is very very utilitarian, very resource-oriented. Yeah, so they trust test scores. They don't trust teacher recommendations. They don't trust qualitative measures of a student's progress. They only trust test scores. It's a very utilitarian, uh, very resource-oriented society. Mm. The other issue is the Chinese don't really trust institutions. There's a lack of civil society in China. There's a lack of institutional trust. So the idea of the Gaokao is that it bypasses institutions. It's a test score, right? So the test score, from a parent's perspective, is an objective and fair indicator of students' 
academic achievement and his ability to do well in school and in life. Yeah, you, you mentioned that several times, uh, the fact that the Gaokao, if they start it all over again, you're going to still come up with the Gaokao because it's the, it's the most effective way to ensure fairness. Right. Uh, with, given the, num- the fact that they're trying to achieve equality, which is everyone, no child is left behind. Exactly. Right? So again, the issue is that China is a very large country, huge population with very limited education resources. Peking and Tsinghua are the two best universities. Everyone's trying to test into these these universities. So uh, we have the Gaokao, and it's very hard to change because parents think that, listen, if we take away the Gaokao, it's just gonna, going to be the elite monopolizing education for yes, themselves. That's okay. And that's all, all we're going to have. Yeah. It, if we, we, we don't have a test score. All that we're going to have is Guanxi. Right. And so if we are middle class or we're lower class, we're totally screwed. Can I point out something with Alonzo on the subject of parents? There's two contradictory uh, groups of parents. One of the ones that, that we just were talking about that, that say, you know, they're very test-oriented. They want the Gaokao, and they're very, they want their kids to test the Gaokao. The other are the parents that are, ju- that are also disenchanted with the education system, and they have the wealth and the means to just get the hell out. Yep. And, and they just want to say, I just went out of the system. My kid's not even going to take the Gaokao, and we're going to educate him in Canada. So you have these two parents, one that are sort of, sort of trying to reinforce the Gaokao, and the others that are saying, we're out of here. Yeah. <laughs> So it's kind right. of a weird situation. So, well, I mean, it, it is a weird situation, and Dave is absolutely right. There are now two major factions of parents. The majority, of course, are those who are perfectly happy with the system as it is because they think that the Gaokao is really the only mechanism of social mobility in China right now. Right. And you have a minority, success, right. but a very growing, a very powerful minority of parents who are disgusted with the test-oriented, high-stakes uh, testing system that we have nowadays in China. So as David says, they're sending their kid to America for college. You know, the... Institute of National Education released its open 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 doors policy, open doors report a few months ago, and it said that over two hundred thousand Chinese are now studying in American institutes of higher learning. This is a, does not include, by the way, high school students. The major trend right now is for parents to send their kids to America for high school. Yeah. And possibly for junior high school. That's right. A lot of yeah. parents are choosing to immigrate to America, to Canada, to New Zealand. Um, just for purposes of educating just, their children. Right? Exactly. So this, this is a major issue. But the problem with this is that because they're voting with their feet, their voice, they're, they're not actually in a, trying to advocate for education reform. So there's nobody here to fight the fight now. Exactly. <laughs> right. exactly. That's, that's yes. the problem. I, mean, I was exactly. going to point that out. Yes. Th- that's a really uh, difficult conundrum then. You, you talked, though, uh, about one of the problems being the, the monolithic uh, Ministry of Education and the whole education apparatus. Are they not persuaded by what the elites, the educators at Tsinghua and Beida are saying uh, to them about the need to create a new... I mean, because every time I read a pronouncement from the Ministry of Education, it seems to ring exactly like that. It, they talk about critical thinking skills. They talk about the need to uh, move beyond just rote learning, every, every, everything that I've ever seen. It seems like the Ministry of Education is behind the idea of reform. Chinese administrators, Chinese Democrats are amazing at doublethink. So they're very good at, you know, saying something in public and then actually doing something completely different. So you visit a lot of high school principals in Shanghai or Beijing. They all talk about education reform and the need to lessen the pressure on kids. But, you know, they do nothing and they just focus on on tests after you leave. So they have this spiel that they perfected for, like, you know, visiting delegations from, from, you know, America or from from the West and, and, you know, for reporters and for, you know, Chinese media. And, but what they do in practice is still the same old, same old. Okay. So we have you here. Uh, you're, you're a noted educational reform advocate. What's your prescription? I, mean, we, I think that we're all pretty clear on the diagnosis here, right? But what's your actual how, – how, what do you think are, are actionable steps that, that, that China can take to uh, free itself from these 
sort of, you know, the fetters of, of this antiquated pedagogical system. Sure. I'm not sure if you gentlemen have a chance to read The Myth of Sisyphus by uh, Albert Camus. Albert Camus. Yeah. 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 And so the idea of the uh, essay is that Sisyphus was this Greek king who offended the gods. So the gods um, became so uh, pissed at him that they devised the most cruel punishment they could think of. And so Sisyphus was um, condemned for all of eternity to roll a boulder up a hill. Yeah, we're all familiar with that. And the boulder would just come right down after, you know, you roll up the hill. So it was a very futile, eternal task. And you can make the argument that Chinese education system, reforming the system here, is a, is the same thing. It's a Sisyphean struggle. It's, it could possibly be an impossible thing because education, remember, it is linked to so many other areas, politics, culture, society, all linked to education. So, um, but I, I take it you're not ready to throw in the towel. I mean, this is your, your this is what you do, right? I mean, clearly you must believe that there's something to be done. Sure. Okay. So I believe the prescription for education reform is to create a creative and innovative culture in education. And that requires three things. One is openness. The openness to new ideas, the openness to criticism. So right now, China is, is very much an insular society. And so I think making the schools more open to criticism and to new ideas, it's the first major uh, initiative that we have to focus on. Second is diversity. So as, as I said, in China right now, it's a very monolithic school system where every school is the same. It's amazing because you go to Yunnan, which you know is a very poor rural area of China, very hilly, and Beijing, if you look at the textbooks, it's very similar, the, the pedagogy. Uh, the teaching style, all very similar. Sure. And that's not appropriate for, for China. So, so basically, how do we create more diversity in the uh, school system in China? And third is basically to create a culture of risk-taking, to basically empower principals to try new things. And most of the time, these new ideas will be stupid and they'll fail. But then some of the ideas will stick. So the only way for China to progress and build an education system that's right for for itself is not to import like the advanced placement or international backward curriculum and basically to focus on um, empowering a new generation of educators to take risks and discover a formula that works right for their local schools. I mean, pardon me, but I mean, I, I, well, I agree that these are, 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 are all things that are necessary to be done. I, they don't feel to me like bite-sized pieces that we can take. I mean, it feels like boiling the ocean to me. It feels like, I mean, you're, 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 you're Individual the, you know, Sisyphean tasks in themselves. Exactly. Almost, uh, yeah. they, they, they don't feel to me like, I mean, I, I would look at that and feel even a greater sense of futility. Like, if these are the only things that I'm mean, getting from A to B seems like, my God, it's, it's, well, listen, it's, you're talking about cultural change. This is the sort of thing that only happens in generations. And you guys have been here in China for a long time. Right. I've been in China for 15 years. And what we've seen in China is that, it changes a lot. It changes very quickly. Yeah. And the idea is that, you know, if you don't like China right now, come back in five years' time. It's completely different. Yeah. I've seen China, you know, go through these generation leaps in my 15 uh, years here. I was the guy back in 2000, 2001, working as a journalist saying that China was going to collapse. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> I mean, like, China is not, the world has collapsed. China is still, you know, move, moving ahead. So I think that right now, given the state of, state of things in China, Things do look impossible, but at the same time, we see this incredible energy and dynamism in China that you really don't see anywhere else. So I think that in the coming years, we're going to see new opportunities. 
But but again, I think the formula um, remains the same, which is like you know we have to create space for experimentation, innovation within this very um, powerful education bureaucracy in place today. Let, let me all just point out also that that in a lot of cases, what's happening is because the the system is so entrenched, there's actually lots of movement in other areas that's forcing change. And you can comment better than I can on some of them. But but for for example, one of them is Gaokao reform, where they're talking about adjusting the the percentages or the ratios. You know that's one thing. The other thing is there's there's new types of schools forming up. Uh, uh, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's experimental schools. There, there are also there are also certain universities, and, I, and the name is escaping me at the moment. But there's some universities that are actually. Uh, choosing to get out of the accreditation yes, absolutely, system, absolutely. so that they are not subject to the, the they're not yeah. part of right. the unified. So, Ching, you you used to work, and in, in fact, at at uh, in Shenzhen at right. the experimental school. So, uh, tell, tell us what these experimental yeah. schools okay. are, so and, and what's being right done. now is a season for education reform in China. In 2010, the Prime Minister Wen Zhaobao announced a major education reform blueprint for the next 10 years. Plans to shift China from a, you know a high stakes testing system into a more progressive uh, model. And um, so, as David was saying, you have many trends and you have many examples of progressive education reform. Certainly, the Southern Institute of Science and Technology in Shenzhen That's the is, one an I'm thinking exa- of. Yes. is an right. example of this, exactly. where the headmaster, the uh, founding principal, is one of China's most progressive educators. He was formerly head of the um, Northern uh, school of Science and Technologies. He, he's, he went down to Shenzhen, invited by the Shenzhen government to open his own university. And what makes the school special is that it bypasses Gaokao. Yeah. It, it admits students based on other criteria, more holistic criteria, as opposed to just one number. We, we're seeing mixed results from the school so far. We're not really sure how the experiment is, is going to turn out. But, you know, the fact that Shenzhen, which is a city of 7 million people, a very wealthy government, is sponsoring this sort of education reform is certainly a cause for hope. We have a lot of private schools opening in uh, China. Keystone Academy, YK Pao School in Shanghai. We have a lot of these new, exciting private schools based on a uh, Western progressive pedagogical model geared towards Chinese students. And then you have Peking and Tsinghua universities, which have been advocating for reform in the Gaokao missions for the longest time. You know, the uh, 100 of the professors wrote an open letter to the president of China saying that, look, if we are going to thrive as a global research institution, we need to have control over emissions. We can't just be emitting all these testing and drones, mm-hmm. robots. We need more critical thinkers. We need more creative individuals who will do very well in the, in the lab, in the classroom, asking questions and questioning authority. Was, so, it, was it Tsinghua that was also going to open up some some actual uh, interviews, personal interviews with certain applicants? Was it Tsinghua or what, what's going right, on? Right. So, so, so the Gaokao, that's the major area of focus. So the idea of Gaokao is how do we go about changing it in a way that's acceptable to the public? So they're looking at many different models, including diversifying or the requirements for admissions. So looking at interviews, but also looking at your academic achievements in high school, GPA, there's, there's all sorts of ideas being floated about. But again, the major issue is that people don't really trust the government. The people really don't trust institutions to make reforms that reflect the needs of society. The people think that, oh, okay, it's just the elite trying to, trying to monopolize education for themselves. The elite is going to screw us over again if we trust them. So um, there's all these ideas being you know, floated around. And a lot of these ideas are very interesting and very good ideas. It's just like, what's the public appetite for change? And 
that question isn't being settled right now. Hmm. The other major trend that we're seeing, and David alluded to this much earlier, is study abroad. Study abroad is a very exciting trend because you have all these young Chinese going abroad and getting a global education. And, and then, well, let's talk about that. I mean, sure. that's, that's an important thing. You, you had mentioned a figure of about 200,000 currently enrolled in in secondary, uh, I mean, post-secondary educational institutions. I've seen another figure of just last year, 235,000 students, sure, uh, sure. including uh, secondary and post-secondary. Sure. Uh, that's an enormous number. Schools have routinely seen their Chinese students double every year, mm-hmm. you know, r- r- mm-hmm. routinely. Mm-hmm. What's what's really interesting to me, though, uh, I mean, I, as a Chinese American growing up and being, you know, intimately acquainted with many others, is it how the learning styles in into which our parents were often inculcated, you know, uh, it, it's it's been the same decade after decade after decade, stretching back to the '30s and '40s. I find often people like me who were born in the United States still have that same kind of kind of uh, kind of approach, an almost resistance to that. Uh, Challenge to authority, the, the so-called, I hate the phrase, but thinking out of the box or, or, sure. or what, what, what's going on here? I mean, is, it, is there something sort of more deeply cultural and certainly not genetic? But you, you actually have an interesting ex- personal experience, right? I mean, you were uh, born in China, but you were you moved to Canada when you were quite young. Is mm-hmm. that correct? Mm-hmm. And uh, you ended up attending Yale and had, I think, uh, in, in many ways, a, a typical experience for a lot of, of Asian Americans or for a lot of specifically East Asian Americans. In, in the States. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. Um, this is a topic I've been thinking a lot about. Um, you know, study abroad, it's a very personal issue for me because, I, as you say, I was an immigrant to Canada and I came back to work in the education system. So I think a lot about my, per, my personal experience in the Western education system and I think a lot about how it compares with the Chinese education system. So this has become a very personal issue for me, a very emotional, very uh, personal issue. So my story is this. When I first went to Canada, I had a very tough time because uh, I was very shy. I was a very awkward kid. You know, in China, I would have fit in perfectly well. You know, it's like the ugly duckling story. Right? And I would, perfectly, I would have fit in perfectly well in China because everyone is shy. Everyone's <laughs> awkward. Everyone just reads books in China. But in a place like Toronto, where being popular is very important, and being cool and being good at sports and being good with girls. It's Canada, they can just forget about trying to be cool. <laughs> right, sure. But um, but I but I, I had a very tough time growing up in Canada. I was bullied a lot. I was teased a lot. I developed a lot of traumatic psychological scars growing up in Canada. And then when, when I went to Yale, it was a different type of psychological scar because all my classmates came from, you know, these very upper class, very intellectual families. And my family, my dad was a cook, my mom was a seamstress, and I felt a complete fraud at a place like Yale where, you know, being charming, where, where social etiquette was the priority. So I ran away from all of that. I was alienated, I was traumatized, um, I was very withdrawn, and I was very shy. I basically decided that I wanted to run all away from all of this and then come to China. And the irony, of course, is that I'm helping students now go away, I'm helping students go abroad and potentially encounter the same sort of <laughs> psychological scars that I encountered when I was in uh, high school in Canada. Oh, misery when I was loves company. Yeah, yeah. yeah like so... Fraternity hazing. You know, but but yeah. at the same time, because I've had this experience and because I see the dangers, the inherent dangers of Chinese encountering a Western education system, I'm a very vocal critic of this trend, actually. I write a lot for Chinese newspapers 
uh, emphasizing the need for students to be psychologically prepared for the experience in America. Basically, what we find is that China and the West is not a good marriage. And so the Chinese education system, it's very good at producing students to do well in the Chinese school, in, in a Chinese society. So not talking, not questioning authority, just going to the flow, emphasizing and leveraging your Guanxi network. These are all very important skills you need to do well in China. But when these kids go off to America, they find that because, there's, because they've been indoctrinated to do well in the Chinese school system, they become stressed out by the American school system where everyone's raising his hand, everyone is talking at a turn, the professor expects you to say something interesting or unique in classroom discussion, the professor expects you to write a paper and advocate your opinion, whether it's right or wrong. These are all, these are all hallmarks of the Western school system. Mm. These are all alien, alien concepts to the Chinese school system. Um, so when Chinese students go abroad, we're seeing a lot of psychological confusion uh, and alienation right now. I get I get emails all the time, and I just got one this week. So I'm thinking about it from from friends of mine who are academics or professors in different universities, and they they write to me because they know I'm in China and I know a lot of Chinese people. I know the Chinese educational system, and the emails always go something like this: I have this really great bright graduate student from the PRC, and we put him on here. It was he seemed very high scores, off the charts, sure. really nice guy, really smart guy, and I, we put him on this project. And he's he's coming up with these, uh, you know, his analytical skills are, are nil. He's, he doesn't seem to be able to come up with any any ideas, and and they, or at least as far as we can see. And he, they, the questions that we get are: Am I missing something? Is it a language problem? Is it a cultural problem? Sure. Am I expecting too much? I don't know what to say to them uh, exactly. All right. So, <laughs> what makes us humans special is our resilience, our ability to grow, to adapt. But the problem is that when Chinese go to America, the culture is so foreign to these Chinese students, um, so open, so diverse, uh, so vocal, that these Chinese students become psychologically traumatized and they become withdrawn. And that Mm. inhibits the ability to learn, right? Mm. I mean, like, the neuroscience behind this is very clear. Uh, When we are confident, when we are happy, we are much more open to new ideas. Our brains can absorb new ideas much more easily uh, than if we are stressed. If we're stressed, it's the fight or flight response and our system shuts down. So I feel that what's happening is that a lot of Chinese go to the United States, they have, they're not ready uh, for the sort of like, you know, harsh debating uh, culture uh, that ex- exists in the American workplace. And they become very insecure, they become very withdrawn. They possibly, I mean, like all of them are very bright to be able to go to the United States, mm-hmm. right? And they could possibly have a lot to contribute. It's just that they are you know, they're handicapped by their fears and doubts and self-hatred. And so they're not, they're not able to uh, contribute to the conversation effectively. And I say this out of my own personal experience. Sure, sure. Um, that, that accords with, uh, with, with what I've seen. I have my own sort of pet theory about how best to do it. So some, for somebody of me, so some, somebody like you or me, David, who uh, has the opportunity to pick and choose among Chinese and, and, and Western pedagogical styles, I am not ready to, to, to say that there's nothing uh, good about the about Chinese education. I think that, that it actually can confer significant advantages on a young person. I, I think that there's value in the ability to perform just incredibly difficult mnemonic tasks and <laughs> just, just just wire yourself to be able to to, to do things that will re- I mean, because much will require memorization. If That's you want right. to excel at history, yeah. you need to be able to remember things. If you well, want, so I, I, I have this sort of pet theory I thought, like, that uh, a child at a very, very young age 
should be given freedom to play. They shouldn't be, you know, uh, forced to, to. I mean, I think that that we are when we're very very young, we have these incredibly plastic brains. You know, part of the reason why we have such a long period of helplessness in in uh, as infants and as toddlers compared to other mammals, uh, compared to other animals. Uh, is that we do need this this play time yeah. to to develop the ability to create counterfactuals right, and do it, right. and then then for for I mean so in, in in a sense giving them that kind of freedom that kind of Montessori esque you know very very young uh, freedom then throw them into the Chinese system for a while let them learn that uh, that, that discipline and and then take them out of it when they're in junior high well, before uh, it gets let, before it's let me ask there's a late. book by Howard Gardner that's probably way yeah. out of date Multiple intelligence yeah yeah well no that one but there's also one called To Open Minds it's specifically mm. about China sure. And the example, and I've given this example a million times, I don't even know if it's valid or not, but it's very vivid, and maybe you can comment on it. He says, or he gives the example of the the difference between the Chinese education system and the American education system, is teaching a young child, and this this has to do with what you were just saying too, teaching a child to open a door with a key. And he says, you know, the... The Chinese style is to like hold the child's hand with the key in it sure. and say, now see, you push it in and you turn it right. Okay, now let's try it again. See, you got it. And the kid very quickly learns the skill of opening the door. The, the American approach, on the other hand, is supposed to be you just hand the key to the kid and say, you figure out how to open the door. And so the kid tries and struggles and everything that they finally get it. And everyone goes, yeah, you figured it out, right? So, but the point is that in the process of learning how to open the door, the, the kid has also learned another skill, which is GPS, general problem solving. Sure. You know, and how, what do I yeah. do in a new situation when I don't know what to do? Yeah. And, and is that a fair uh, contrast, or is that a sim- oversimplification, or is there anything to what Howard is saying? Yeah, sure. I mean, like, it's, it's an oversimplification. I mean, the other comparison you can say is that, you know, Americans play sports, whereas Chinese just play the video game sports, right? I mean, like, you, you can say that's completely... Uh, the American system is focused on like learning by doing, doing, whereas the Chinese school system is just like learning by memorizing, um, learning right. Get back to Kaiser's point. I think that what we can take away from the school Chinese school system, like what where the Chinese school system is very strong, and where other school systems should try to emulate, is that you know there's a real respect for hard work in China, and there's a real respect and understanding that to grow as an individual, you might have to make sacrifices, you might have to endure periods of, of painful of hardship, right. right. Exactly. And I think that's a very valuable and very worthwhile lesson. Sure. And, and the negative side of that is, I mean, don't you kind of in, in your heart of hearts believe that America, the American school system coddles to children? It, it, it sort of accepts all sorts of I excuses that, for that? Yes, yeah, I've I, always I thought I mean, that. Yeah. I've always felt that yeah. way. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, I could go on and on about the defects in the American school system. I mean, they sort of like the culture of instant, instantaneous gratification, right? Sure. Neil Postman wrote this book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, in 1980, predicting, you know, like, TV and how TV is going to kill any creative individuals. Yeah, the lionization of the mediocre. Everyone is, I mean, everyone yeah. gets a prize. Everyone gets, everyone a, gets a star. star. Yeah. 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 Well, we've heard a lot of horror stories, and clearly the students in America right now are disengaged from from learning. The other issue that I'm concerned about is how we're drugging kids right now in the United States with Adderall and Ritalin, right? Where, yeah. where you know, like if you can't sit still... It's we're going to give you this methamphetamine, basically. Exactly. <laughs> and then we're going to kill your brain, and it's because you can't sit still. But no one thinks, well, the, the kid can't stand still because he's a six-year-old, and he's, you know, yeah. energetic and right. enthusiastic, and he wants to explore his world instead of just sitting down and listening to his teacher make him do a test. Yeah. Um, tiger so I, father does not believe in ADD. I mean, <laughs> like a, no, the tiger father does not believe in ADD, right? Yeah. I mean. 
Uh, yeah, so I think that, I mean, there are multiple issues uh, wrong with the American school system. But at the same time, I mean, like the fact that there's an emphasis on the individual, there's a sort of openness and diversity of discussion in America. That's something that's also very valuable for the Chinese school system to learn as well. Yeah. To me, uh, once again, I, I always feel like everything in life is a kind of a balance between discipline and freedom. It's always finding yeah, the, sure. the right balance, as, as with so many other things. And, and in this case, it's, it's kind of uh, – even though I, I don't kind of subscribe to that kind of uh, essentialist notion that, that Chinese pedagogy is irreducibly about discipline and, and, and American uh, about freedom. I mean, I think there's clearly a happy medium to be found between these. Um, Don't you think also that you know education, we tend to limit it to the schools and to parents, but kids and, and even the post-90s generation, they're learning an awful lot just by general cultural assimilation from sure, media. Right, yeah. they're, they're getting messages and ways of solving problems that are not being given in school. They're just getting it online, for example. Right. Okay. One eye on the clock here. I, I realize that we're, we're, we're running out of time here. And we, I do uh, I want to thank John Suchin for coming in. And, and, A rich and, topic. Yeah, to absolutely. I mean, wow. one that we can, we can talk about endlessly. Uh, but let's move on to, to recommendations. Maybe, David, you would like to start with us okay. this week? Again, keeping uh, avoiding attention deficit disorder, I'm going to recommend something in keeping with this topic. <laughs> so uh, one book... Uh, in particular, but there's two books. There's a book by uh, William C. Hanas called Asia's Orthographic Dilemma. And it maybe it's good uh, additional reading for this podcast because it touches upon an aspect we didn't touch upon on the podcast, which is a big difference in the Chinese educational system and the American educational system is the Chinese educational system includes learning the Chinese writing system, mm -hmm. which is a very time-consuming and yeah. labor-intensive and rote memorization intensive Right. I, I, I tend to think that it, it actually is, is uh, one of the tremendous things. That, I mean, it teaches you to make these uh, virtually... I mean, yes, of course, we understand that radicals can, can give yeah. you some sort of phonemic value, but virtually arbitrary. Time, virtually arbitrary. Yeah. Uh, these yeah. symbols right. linked to an idea. And, and this particular book makes the case, at least the ergonomic case or the efficiency case, that, that it is such a drag on the educational system and also is a hindrance to certain kinds of critical thinking or, or certain kinds of critical tools that just in, involve classification, abstraction, be, because of the way the system is devised. It's, it's too complex to talk about now, but I think it's a good thing to think about in terms of the, uh, and not just the Chinese education system, Japanese, sure. Korean has shared some aspects uh, with Chinese. David, I'm, I'm going to explain your point and make another recommendation. Uh, this book by Marianne Wolf, who is this neuroscientist at Tufts University, she wrote a book called Proust and the Squid is, but the idea in the book is she looks at the history, the neuroscience behind the reading brain, how the reading oh. brain was formulated. But the thing about, about Chinese language is that uh, the script is not uh, phonological, which means you cannot... Right. tell how to read it right. based on the character. There are some clues. I mean, there are some clues. It's weakly right. right. Yeah. But like the argument sh that she makes is that because of this, because the spoken language and the written language are separate, it takes Chinese people so many more years yes, yes. to learn a language, like yes. which argument, inhibits right. the learning. Yeah, yes, but, yes. But, but I'm saying, you know, Proust and the Squid is, you know, uh, oh, okay. I'll have to elaboration of, yeah, of this yeah. book, yes. Yeah. Oh, great. So I'm going to do something I, I don't usually do, which is to recommend something from the company that I work for. But I think this is a whole lot of fun. You guys ought to check it out. Go to trends, T-R-E-N-D-S dot Baidu dot com and look at uh, Baidu Predict. What Baidu Predict is able to do right now, uh, we have all sorts of very, very large scale, uh, big data driven uh, predictive uh, 
features right now. They they include the World Cup. We went twelve for t- for twelve. Uh, we we, we really? have a, a tremendous record right huh. now on the World Cup predictions. Uh, we beat Goldman, Microsoft, Google, all the others uh, who who have are offering big data driven prediction engines or pr- predictions for the World Cup. Um, we we got Germany correct uh, to 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 beat Brazil, although wow. we didn't give it quite a seven to one margin. Do you give stock the, predictions? Uh, other, not yet. <laughs> that, that that may be coming. I mean, so <laughs> two of the things that are coming are real estate prices and uh, uh, theatrical release box office, huh. uh, we, we, we'll, which we'll be able to do. And uh, there's explanations about how all this stuff works. But the other ones that we have online right now are intercity travel within China, and then from China to outbound. Uh, destinations by country and it, it, it's predictive it looks at everything from you know historical patterns to uh, weather forecasts to uh, reservations and 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 ticket purchases already made online to search actually of course we we, we would we would use search we have uh, predictions for diseases as well infectious diseases including uh, the flu and cold uh, hepatitis hmm tuberculosis, and sexually transmitted diseases as well. Uh, this is using extensive data from the Chinese Center for Disease Control. Amazing. It's, it's Amazing. very cool. Check it out. Um, it's kind of mind-blowing. There's, they're very nicely put together interactive graphs. And one for Gaokao. We have a, a Gaokao huh. predictor, too, which, which, which will show you uh, whether you're, you're looking at Wenke or Li. You're looking at you know, uh, the arts and, uh, and letters, or you're looking at... Uh, Arts, I guess, arts, letters, and social sciences, and then on the other hand, of course, uh, sciences and engineering, natural sciences and engineering, and it'll go by region, uh, th- testing into each university the num- the, the the projected score uh, dispersion. Hmm. Very, very interesting, and it's also also quite accurate. Kind of creepy. Yeah, trends.baidu.com. Check it out. I don't agree that it's creepy. I think it's just, it's actually <laughs> yeah. very cool. It, I, I fear determinism. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. And of course, I, I work for that company, and just for instance, for, for for purposes of full disclosure. Great, Zhang Xuqin. So, books on education, I, I would recommend. Um, so, definitely the uh, book called "The Nurture Assumption" by Judith Rich Harris. Mm-hmm. It's the social animal, David Brooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's dr- a very good book. Yes. It's a very good book. Yes, uh, "Drive" by Daniel Pink which looks at the, how students become motivated in the classroom, uh, what motivates them, and what destroys their creativity, what enhances their creativity. It's a very good book for educators. Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. I'm oh, sorry, really? I, I'm sorry I have to say that, but <laughs> if, you're, if you work in education, it, it, it does give you a lot of like, interesting ideas in education. Doesn't um, it put out that silly notion that rice farming <laughs> is, is, is responsible for better mathematical capability? It, you, know, you know what? It, it creates discussion. It creates debate. You know? okay. and, and, that, and that's what we strive to, uh, to strive to accomplish as educators. The Brain That Changes Itself by uh, Norman Dodge. Uh, it's a book on neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically how we learn. And, and, and the great thing about neuroplasticity is that adults are, can, just, can learn just as well as, as kids. So the idea is that le- learning should be a lifelong process. But yeah, these are the books that sort of come to the top of my mind. That's please, a great yeah. please do not watch Dead Poets Society. <laughs> oh, come on. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Come on. <laughs> Anyway, thank you very much for, for joining us. And uh, folks, we've got a, a bunch of really cool shows coming up in, in store for you. So uh, stay tuned, and we'll see you next week on the Seneca Podcast. Take care.